Hey everyone, welcome back to the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and I'm joined today by editor of GoodyReader.com, Mercy Pilkington. Mercy, how are things? I'm great. How are you? I am tremendously swamped with all of the big news that has come out today. I'm sure you are. It was quite a day for some some publishing news. Yeah, I mean, outside of you know Amazon releasing new devices or Kobo releasing a fleet of devices, uh, today I guess was probably the most newsworthy day. And let's get right into it. Um, uh, Kobo and Sony have reached a landmark distribution agreement for ebooks. So, if you are a Sony user and have purchased ebooks using the Sony e-reader, maybe a Sony phone or a Sony branded tablet, or even if you have used the Sony Reader app for PC or Mac, any purchases you've made from Sony are automatically going to be transferred to Kobo starting in March. This is huge news and I mean there's a lot of facets to this that were not mentioned in the press release that you know the press releases are usually don't give a lot away very neat very polished a few key quotes from from, from some executives but they certainly don't know the whole story um, before I really get into it mercy what are your thoughts overall of this uh, of this well, you know, of course, I'm, I'm here in the U.S. I'm also in a rural part of the U.S. where we're lucky to have a bookstore, let alone a lot of widespread ebook use. And so I have to honestly say I could not name you five people who've used the Sony store. Um, I'm sure they're out there, and I, I applaud Sony for their innovative beginnings in ebook distribution. They were a huge part of the ebook revolution, the digital revolution we're experiencing. And I, I mean, great to them. Um, I'm really happy that they decided to ink this deal with Kobo because I, I can't say enough about the company. They are pioneers in getting ebooks into the hands of people worldwide. And so I can't think of two companies better suited to work together than the original pioneers versus the people who are actually bringing ebooks around the world. Okay, so let's get into the semantics of, of the matter. Um, this is only for Canada and the U.S. Uh, Sony mm -hmm. will do business as usual in Australia, in Germany, the U.K., and the rest of Europe. So if you're a European listener, um, this Kobo deal with uh, Sony does not affect you at this time. Uh, Sony tried to make it clear to me when I was giving them, when they gave us an exclusive interview, that it's business as usual. Customers in Europe have nothing to worry about uh, for the near future. So uh, whether this Sony and Kobo deal works out really well and Kobo just takes over all of Sony's stuff, it remains to be seen. Um, there's also something to be said about Sony sponsoring the Pottermore website and being instrumental in the distribution of the Harry Potter books. What's going to happen to that? No one knows. Um, no one else is actually talking either about the financial details uh, about this. If uh, you know how much did this deal cost at Kobo and Sony? It's the type of thing where no one's really divulging specific fingers. Uh, obviously, it looks like Kobo had to pay Sony money uh, for this, but no one has been forthcoming in the details. Now, one, Mercy, you're familiar with Smashwords as an independent distribution platform mm -hmm. for authors. And right. one of the avenues of self-publishing has been with Sony. Right. Absolutely. So what does this deal mean for self-publishers 
for Sony, Recobo, and so on. People have long kind of disparaged uh, Smashwords as just kind of a catch-all garbage bin for all kinds of indie content (laughs) without really realizing that Smashwords serves a very vital purpose in that they are not just a self-publishing platform, they are a distribution platform. So, theoretically, an author who really just does not have the time, energy, or know-how to sit down and distribute their book themselves to Amazon, Nook, Sony, Flipkart, Diesel, all these other places, including Apple, um, they can send it one time to Smashwords. Now, Smashwords will make its, its portion of the sale basically staying in operation by taking a small portion of each sale from all of those retail sites. That's why a lot of authors choose to now go with, you know, they can upload to Amazon themselves, they can upload to Barnes & Noble, Kobo quite easily, and then kind of leave it to Smashwords to handle the ones that are not as, as readily available to all, to all authors. For example, Flipkart, which is the number one retailer right now in, in India. You know, that's huge. If you're trying to get your book in front of readers in India, which, you know, English is one of the official languages and quite a number of people read in English, um, you know, Smashwords is an excellent way to do that. Unfortunately, it's very easy to send your book to Kobo on your own, but not quite so simple with Sony. And so a lot of people who've been relying on Smashwords to distribute the book to Sony for them may think now, you know, I don't really need Smashwords to do that for me because I can send it to Kobo. So I really hope this does not have an impact on Smashwords business since they also only distribute to Canada and the United States through Sony. Okay, I actually spoke with CEO of Smashwords, uh, Mark Coker, and uh, he had told me um, the following. Uh, the actual EPUB files Smashwords delivers to Sony will not transfer to Kobo, but the digital identifiers will. And these identifiers, ISBN numbers, metadata, will allow Kobo to provide access for Sony customers in their Kobo libraries. If Kobo does not have the book, then that book will not transfer. So. If you have just published to Sony but didn't publish the Kobo, those books will not transfer. Uh, incidentally, if you purchase a lot of magazines, graphic novels through Sony, those will not transfer as well. Uh, finally, uh, Sony developed a new EPUB 3 kids section in their store last year. It was basically uh, enhanced ebooks, so ebooks with video, audio, a lot of multimedia formats. A lot of them were not self published, but they were done through proper uh, publishing channels. Those books will not go over either. So basically, any book that doesn't exist on the Kobo ecosystem will not transfer. And so what this means is that you should back this up locally on your computer to ensure that you can transfer it to other devices. Uh, Sony does use a stock Adobe DRM solution. So if you have another EPUB capable device, so like a Kobo e-reader, like a Barnes & Noble e-reader and so on, you could load these books on it. And same with, uh, you could just install the Sony reading app. The Sony e-reading app will continue to function, but once March comes around, you will no longer be able to actually buy books anymore uh, through Sony. And one of the more interesting things I I was wondering was, and Sony actually addressed this, was 
if you know if I walk into a Best Buy in the states, or if I walk into an electronics store and I see uh, like a Sony e-reader sitting on a shelf, um, the likelihood of that is next to nil. But you know, if I'm in Canada and you know Canada still sells Sony e-readers in almost every major electronics store, if I walk into the store. There's going to be nothing on the retail packaging that mentions Kobo. And I was kind of wondering about that because will there be a sticker there that says powered by Kobo or, you know, 4.5 million books from Kobo? Sony said that there'll be no Kobo branding on any of their retail packaging. So I thought that that was very interesting. It is actually that it seems like they're, you know, they're aligning themselves with a powerful platform that can distribute these books that can seamlessly take over for their dedicated customers with hopefully very little disruption to the reading experience and to the purchasing experience. So why wouldn't they want to go ahead and say, hey, we're working with Kobo and we're proud of it. So interesting. Yeah, so that was probably the biggest probably news item of the day. Um, I've reached out to Kobo for comments, but they have since not been able to uh, respond to my pleas of questions, concerns, and things like that as a, as a press time. So if you want to know more about this Sony and, e and, and Kobo deal, uh, we have two articles on the front page. Um, the one that I wrote was called What the Sony and Kobo eBook e Deal Means for Readers. And I got a lot of quotes from Sony and from Smashwords that respond to the article. Hopefully tomorrow I'll be able to write another one with Kobo's perspective as well as Overdrive's perspective because Overdrive under their um, you know, they, they provide tablets and e-readers to schools and libraries. They have their list of recommended devices and Sony has been at the forefront of their most recommended device. So will that change now that Sony is ultimately becoming irrelevant now? Uh, we're going to reach out and find all this information out. Um, Mercy, do you have any news to report today? I do. We spent a lot of time this week talking to David H. Rothman, one of the original founders of a site that you and I are very familiar with, and that's Telereed, um, talking about his his new goal of an endowment for libraries. Um, basically, libraries, as we know, are facing situations of crisis proportions, and an article that Rothman had actually written very recently indicated that the average per capita spending for libraries in the last year that we have information on, which was 2010, was a little over $4 per citizen. And when you get into locations like Mississippi, which is in the Deep South, that number drops to just over a dollar per citizen that libraries were given to spend on content, operating expenses, and things like that. And so David is working on an endowment um, because he's kind of disillusioned with the Digital Public Library of America. And people who've been following the news of that entity that came out last year um, may understand that the DPLA, as it's called, is really lose purpose. It's it's kind of shifting into more of an academic purpose and an archival purpose where it's, it's a really noble project to to digitize these archive records and these private collections from around the country but they're all of historic or academic importance and so the DPLA with the word public right there in the name of it is not going to serve the average citizen and so people like David and someone named Jim Duncan who is the executive director of the Colorado Library Consortium um, they've been really working on 
you know, it's great to have a DPLA in the U.S., much like the, the Digital Library of Norway or different programs in other countries, but what do we have for the average citizen? How are we going to get ebooks in front of people when we're already spending barely a dollar per person in some parts of the country? And that's annual. And so he's working on an endowment. He's really calling on basically just saying the super rich, as he called them. And he cited an, a quote from Forbes magazine that indicated that four, the top 400 of the wealthiest people in America account for $2 trillion of wealth. And when you look at a situation in 2010 where a grand total of just over $10 million was spent on libraries and content, you know, it really shows the discrepancy between where wealth is going and how it's not impacting libraries. And he's working to change that. He'd like to see an endowment that is funded by private citizens who have the wealth and means to do so, but while giving some, some measure of control to the government so that we still have this, this transparency and that we still make sure that that endowment is spread equally, not just among your major cities and their massive library systems, but also the, the rural libraries like he mentioned in Mississippi. So it all sounds fine and well to have like a national digital library. It doesn't seem to be working very much in the states, you know, from the sounds of it. But some countries have been able to make it work, uh, Norway more specifically. Right. Um, I think one of the factors, and of course I speak as only someone who has lived outside of the U.S., um, but has, of course, obviously not lived everywhere. I think the problem is what we still run into in the U.S., and a lot of people are not aware of this dynamic, is that by having 50 separate states with 50 separate governments in place, we don't share across state borders. We have federal funding for certain things, but we also have very specific state funding. So a library in Georgia and a library in Arkansas do not share, not readily and especially not in funding. And so I understand that the, the DPLA is, is a massive undertaking and it's a very noble cause. You know, that is basically saying we need a national clearinghouse. There are, you know, slave records and, and records of, of these transactions of these historical documents housed in private libraries in Arkansas that nobody can access. And so it's really important that people in Nebraska can see them if they wanted to. Um, right now they're just being stored securely to protect them, but they're not being used. And so I understand the undertaking the DPLA is working towards, but at the same time, Rothman is right. It's not going to affect the day-to-day -day, day lives of people who are already struggling from a lack of bookstores, a lack of libraries that are open to meet the public's needs, and a lack of access to books. So this kind of goes, you know, most people listening to the show are likely familiar with Overdrive um, as being one of the premier distribution channels to libraries. Uh, they're a company that's basically for profit. They're not really concerned about providing everybody in the U.S. with equal access to ebooks, whereas uh, the DLPA is. When I mentioned the 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 library in Norway, they actually do something on like a, a country level that we actually talked about before the show started. Whereas uh, the the publishers actually get paid through the government. They're not actually paid through the libraries, which I find is very compelling. It is, and unfortunately it's just not a system that people are going to vote for or get behind in the U.S. because there you've got the government 
supporting private entities, you know, for public access to things. And so that unfortunately is going to be a little too socialist for a lot of American citizens. That's just not how our government is set up here. Um, Luckily, though, one of the entities that could actually be a nice go-between right now is our public, uh, excuse me, our academic libraries at the public education level, because those are actual libraries, but they are supported by federal and state tax dollars. And so that would be a situation where the citizens could say, well, of course the government's going to, to support the libraries, uh, excuse me, support the publishers, because they're already supporting publishers through textbook purchases, book purchases for school libraries, and things like that. I do love the work that Overdrive and 3M are doing. They are making ebook access possible to people. They are making libraries relevant again in, in a, a climate where libraries, unfortunately, are are losing their esteem in the eyes of citizens. As why do I need this? Why do I need to go to a building when I can just you know, hit instant click on Amazon and have my book in two days as a Prime member. You know, I can borrow ebooks. I can I can stream movies. Why do I need my library? And so I applaud 3M and Overdrive for the work that they're doing to make it possible for libraries to keep up. But like you said, those are private companies, and those are not free. They are for profit. They have to be. Otherwise, they would lose their business as well, and we would still have the ebooks. So unfortunately, it's not something that a lot of libraries can afford. Okay, so one actual thing that you mentioned, you kind of touched on it with talking about Amazon Prime as being uh, a, an option that a lot of people, you know, pursue. Uh, it's most certainly to get a free ebook every month. Let's let's talk a little bit about Amazon self-publishing platform. Uh, Mercy, a lot of people may not know this, but you're an actual, you're a writer yourself, and I am. <laughs> you, you you have used a lot of distribution systems out there for your books, and uh, you know. You're among illustrious company where you, Hugh Howie, Jennifer Weiner, and a bunch of other people uh, who are, you know, the seminal writers of our time. They sell a lot of books, uh, but they all kind of agree that the bulk of self-published books are sold on Amazon. They're not actually being sold on Nook Press or Kobo Writing Life or or even uh, the Apple iBookstore. Right. Um, and actually, Hugh Howie had mentioned this a couple weeks ago when we talked about it in our last podcast together about his uh, his kind of lashing out at the Authors Guild and, and Scott Turo um, for not supporting authors more and for really kind of seeming like the, he, like the Authors Guild is in bed with the publishing industry, the traditional industry, and that they constantly attack Amazon. And it was Howie who pointed out most self-published authors make the majority of their income through royalties through Amazon. And you know, that's just a dynamic. Amazon sells more ebooks. Um, but there are a lot there are a handful of authors who have found that they sell more books on Smashwords than all other platforms combined or more books on Nook because of the genre they write. And there are definitely different demographics that we have seen are buying Nook devices or Nook ebooks versus Amazon. Um, and so it depends on what you write and what your target audience would be as to where you want your books listed. But certainly Amazon, it's no secret, no selling more ebooks than anyone else. And that is that filters down to the indie authors too, not just the traditionally published authors. Yeah, I find it very interesting that a lot of authors uh, tend to bash Amazon and you know we, we go to a lot of publishing conferences all mm -hmm. over the world uh, on a yearly basis and we would be remiss if a publishing conference did not have a session or two to bash in Amazon. Um, yes. <laughs> it, it seems to be like 
a publishing conference can't even get going unless it has like a few roundtables devoted to hating on Amazon. And, you know, from a self-publishing point of view, I mean, the bulk of sales stem from that platform, whether it's uh, your order, you know, uh, selling tangible books through CreateSpace. So if I buy one of your books, Mercy, through CreateSpace, it actually gets printed in a real book and sent to me. Mm -hmm. And it's like buying a real book or I could just buy the Kindle edition. And, and so... Uh, yeah, I always get discouraged when people bash Amazon. I mean, they're a company, obviously, that's like for profit. They're an online bookseller, amongst other things. But the bulk of self-published uh, titles are sold through Amazon. So I, I fail to see how everyone starts to really like hate on it. And then I start to wonder, uh, and a lot of people, they hate on it because they get more people attending their sessions. The more people attending their mm -hmm. sessions, the more money that the speakers get. If you could, if you're a speaker and you say, you know, at my last conference, it was a crowded house when I talked about Amazon. So let me speak at your 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 convention. Oh yeah, my fees are like ten grand. You know, like a speech and things like that. So it becomes almost like a vested self-interest to hate on Amazon because that that speaker could actually make a viable living hating on them. Right. But, you know, and truthfully, a lot of the events that we cover are aimed at the publishing industry, not just the authors. And so I think the really, it, it makes me laugh. I probably shouldn't laugh. But the thing is, you know, around 2006 or so, a very nice young man named Jeff Bezos went and had great meetings at all the CEOs of all the great publishing houses and said, I have an idea to help you sell more books. And they jumped on it. And now they're sorry they did. And that's the problem. That's what's actually selling tickets to these speaking events is the publishers who are trying to now figure out a way to get away from him. Unfortunately, they made him who he is. And you know, I love to, to envision all these great people who love to bash Amazon who are probably sitting on their computers at 1 o'clock in the morning. It's not internet porn they're looking at. They're ordering free shipping items. And so they're, they're getting the Amazon deal of the day with their Amazon accounts. I would love for someone, I, I shouldn't say this, I would love for someone to hack Amazon's records and see which of the great publishing houses all of their executives have Amazon accounts because they just do it better than anyone else right now. And, you know, I'm sorry, the publishers made them who they are. The publishers wanted another way to put books in front of people and to sell them on the cheap, and they found it by working with Amazon. And now they're trying to distance themselves and find another way to work without having to meet the demands of the most powerful re retailer online right now. Is it possible, though? I mean, all the time we are we are regaled with press releases on a daily basis from startups saying they want to be the next if Netflix of ebooks, they <laughs> want to be the next Amazon, uh, they want to create this like you know utopian global ebook distribution network. Uh, you hear about them once and then you never hear about them again. Um, so you know, is it viable five years, ten years from now? for Amazon to not be the biggest digital bookstore in the world? I would not say bookstore in five years. I would say that, yes, I, I see it possible that Amazon can stretch itself too thin. And I think when the day comes that they start splitting into different entities, 
I think that's going to be the day that we start to see them break apart. Um, Barnes & Noble did a great job since the, the 70s when they actually became Barnes & Noble and bought up different different stores and had their flagship stores. Um, basically, they kept themselves very small, unfortunately. And then when they tried to immediately grow through a college division, a self-publishing platform, an e-reader platform, it was too fast and they couldn't keep up. And so we saw some change there. Um, at the same time, we saw Borders, who didn't adapt at all, who decided, you know what, this is stupid. We're going to do it our way. We're going to do what we've always done and we're not going to change. And they fell apart as well. Um, and so I think Amazon's only real takedown would be if they ever spread themselves too thin, which, you know, every day, like you said, we get another press release telling us another thing that Amazon's doing now. So, I, you know, I kind of have to ask myself, you know, when is it going to be too big? When is When are they not going to be able to keep all of these plates in the air that they're juggling? But right now they're doing it right and, and they know what they're doing. And so, you know, I don't see that day happening in five or ten years. Now, what I do see happening is possibly them abandoning different entities that they sell through. So I think, you know, if the day ever did come that they had to, to get smaller, they would simply return to what made them great in the first place, which is books. They might abandon some of these things that, that may not sell as well. Um, right now, of course, we knew that the Kindle devices were not a money maker. They were simply a tool to sell more books. So they were basically selling them at cost. Again, that's a brilliant strategy. And so if Amazon ever did get to, to be too big, I see them easily saying, well, that didn't work for us, and just closing up shop in one or two smaller areas to strengthen themselves again. Okay, so one final bit of Amazon news and something that we haven't really talked about, but it could contribute to your argument of spreading themselves too thin, Kindle Worlds. And mm -hmm. it was a, a fan fiction platform that had launched last year. And they've actually secured the rights of, of uh, we spoke earlier about Hugh Howie of his Silo uh, trilogy, or I think it's four books now, mm -hmm. uh, but they have the rights for mm -hmm. that. And Hugh Howie himself mm -hmm. is actually writing fan fiction uh, for Kurt Vonnegut's uh, universe. Um, a little right. bit of news came that uh, they have ironed out an agreement with Hasbro to have mm -hmm. G.I. Joe fan fiction. <laughs> Yo, Joe. Exactly. It's about time he turned 50 years old today. So why not? Why not let him have some stories? I'm I'm not envisioning any author I know who sits around secretly writing G.I. Joe fan fiction. <laughs> Is there anybody? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like Exactly. But you know, now that they've opened the the avenue there and you could get paid for this, you can legitimately publish it as opposed to just posting it on free reading sites or free fan fiction sites. Now that you can actually publish your story and get paid for it, I think it's you know it's timely. We are you know right now in, involved in a lot of military operations. We have a lot of people in our country who are, are related to someone or know someone who is serving overseas in the military, and I think we could see a resurgence. You know, um, I have today learned about the existence of the Bronies, the My Little Pony Brothers, um, and those are men who are oh yeah. <laughs> I've heard about this. I yes. heard that, like, when it's they have brony fan fiction. when they have My Little Pony conventions, like where really? they, uh, you know, they sell the toys and the movies, and you know, they have like conventions. They have conventions for everything. But apparently, the My Little Pony conventions, you would figure that it would be populated by a lot of little girls that like love ponies, but it's <laughs> right. it's all older middle aged guys. 
Yes, I believe it. And they are called the Bronies. I did not know that. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know what they were named. The Bronies. That's awesome. They are the bros who like My Little Ponies. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to go ahead and judge and say that this, to me, is right up there with the Bigfoot erotica. I, I don't personally want to read Brony fan fiction based on My Little Ponies. But that is the great thing about digital publishing, self-publishing, and Kindle Worlds. There is an audience for it. If there are entire conventions dedicated to My Little Ponies that the bronies like to attend, I am certain that some author with some talent and some ability can actually do well for himself writing these stories and finding an audience who is clamoring for them. More power to them. It's not what I want to read, and we will be reviewing it on Goody Reading. But <laughs> yeah, totally. You're not going to read about it in our like ebook review I am of the week. Not going to read any fan fiction. But again, I applaud them if this is what they write and they do it well and they have an audience. Great. Now, okay. So before I talk about <laughs> what I want to say, um, if a brony fan fiction book made like the bestseller list on Amazon, would you review it? There would be heavy drinking involved, but yes, I would. Okay. Um, so <laughs> uh, with this GI Joe fan fiction, I'm a, I'm a kid of the eighties. I was born in 79. So, uh, all in the eighties, I grew up watching GI Joe cartoons and, um, you know, every episode was Cobra, which is like the enemy, uh, making like a grand master plan to like, you know, build a satellite, you know, in space to shoot death rays or to build a colony on the moon or to, you know, take over like the world blood diamond trade. And, you know, by the end of the episode, they would always lose. G.I. Joe would always win. I'm actually, of I'm actually... <laughs> very interested at the thought of either writing myself or hopefully petitioning an author friend to write a book where Cobra prevails. I, you know, I, I, my whole life, (laughs) I I wanted Cobra to win when I, you know, I watched all the GI Joe uh, cartoons when I was a kid. I watched the, the two blockbuster movies that have come out in the last few years. I've even read some of the comics, Cobra always loses and it's like (laughs) what I wouldn't give to see Cobra just prevail just you know when 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 the you know the ashen rain is falling from the sky you know when like you know everyone's like you know when all the yojos are all like they can't they're too hoarse to say it anymore just like Cobra like Cobra Commander, Destro, they're just like reigning supreme at the end and just like cackling maniacally and just like, you know, finally after like 40 years, we've finally done it, you know? Um, Exactly. And you know, you just hit exactly on the whole purpose of fan fiction and why it's popular and why I'm thrilled to death that Kindle Worlds is making it possible for people to make money. We had the great news this week. J.K. Rowling came out and said, you know what? I'm really sorry that Ron and Hermione ended up together. I really wish she I had not She apologized for she it. She did. And she said, you know, and now I'll say, J.K. Rowling has been someone who initially fought fan fiction. She has taken people to litigation yep. over using her characters. And I would love to see her publish her own fan fiction of her work. You know, give us the book where it's Hermione and Harry instead of Ron and Harry. Now, we, we may or may not skip the fan fiction 
many people have published where Ron and Harry get together. But J.K. Rowling has also said that she's always assumed that Dumbledore was homosexual in her mind as she created his character. And that's the really great thing about fan fiction. So not only can Cobra win now, but we can have the genuine romance we should have had all this long, even in the author's mind. Um, I don't know if this was just a decision she made as the author. It did incorporate a very popular character. I think Ginny Weasley got a little more popularity than she originally thought the character would. And so, obviously, since Ron cannot marry Ginny, Harry had to. And so we have you know, the obvious pairing up of Ron and Hermione and Harry and Ginny. And so I think there she was just giving her readers what they wanted as opposed to what she wanted as the author. I would love to see her do a fan fiction, do an alternate ending book. And I think it would be wildly popular, even if she only released it in ebook. Of course, she owns her digital rights. She's allowed to do that. And a lot of authors who don't own their rights cannot. So I would love to see her create the book that she wanted and that obviously so many fans wanted. Well, I know that she, after the Harry Potter universe, like after the, the you know, the eight books or whatever ended, she wrote two other books that were actually are getting made into movies. Mm-hmm. Um, they're basically about like the creatures and like uh, the, the magical things of the Harry Potter universe. So uh, right. they'll talk about like the, the dragon tamers in like Romania and like, you know, kind of the, the creatures they and the centaurs. So they kind of loosely showed them in the movies and kind of talked about them but they're they're making a whole movie about sort of like you know these mystical creatures and like the the people from the magic you know the place uh to capture them or to train them or to you know go after rogue wizards and stuff like that so that would be interesting but i you know the prospect of harry potter fan fiction i don't really see that as being a part of kindle worlds anytime soon uh because you know she has (laughs) she has too much money and i don't think that really amazon has anything to offer her to make her a part of kindle worlds you know right except possibly like i said maybe this could be where i would love to see this have been the opening of that door where she says you know what i'm the first one in line here's my book where i change the ending and the rest of you can follow suit i i don't see that happening anytime soon especially in the in the acknowledgement that these were books intended for children and preteens and there are some inappropriate fan fiction works that have been published that are decidedly not for children and so I, i do think she's smart i respect her for protecting her characters and not just letting anyone play with them and publish whatever they want to um but i think what she's actually come out and announced this last week I think that's exactly why fan fiction was created and exactly what you just said about Cobra. You know, just for fun, just one time, wouldn't it be great if Cobra got to win? You watched him every Saturday and he lost every Saturday and every single week he tried again, <laughs> you know? Wouldn't it be great if one time the poor guy just got to have a small victory? It's the law of averages, you know? <laughs> right. It's like if you, I mean, the definition of a psychotic is, do, you know, doing things the same way expecting like different results <laughs> exactly. you know and it's like the whole gi joe premise is just like psychotic because it's like always trying to like take over the world to do this to try it like you know always the same way or maybe little fluctuations and always you know expecting different results this time 
it'll be all different and it doesn't and uh yeah i i'm seriously considering at least writing one or two pages with like you, you know you should and you know you can have your own convention you guys could be called the gi bros instead of the bronies oh. you know i am all <laughs> you are kind of passionate about this <laughs> i think that that might be stepping too far gi brody <laughs> There you go. You are going to be the leader of the GI Bronies. I could like partner with like the the pony people and like exactly. make it like a share convention space. <laughs> it's like uh, I have a few hundred dollars. Yeah, me too. You know. <laughs> okay, so the last thing I want to talk about was actually a very interesting report out of the Netherlands, and this kind of um, as a final thing that we talk about, it's uh, very interesting. Uh, it's about piracy. And um, they're saying that in the Netherlands, uh, piracy is like a huge problem. They're saying that ebooks only account for 4.5% of the total revenue that publishers rake in every year, uh, which is fairly a fairly huge number if you consider there's only 16,000 ebooks for sale. And out of that 16,000 ebooks, over 600,000 of them were purchased. So that's a very small pool of titles available. And that's a pretty large figure considering that people have bought that. But piracy is a problem. Uh, they were saying that the average Dutch e reader contains 117 ebooks, 11 of which are paid for. Wow, that is a small number. That but. is. But I mean, you know, Amazon is really wanting to get into the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. They really want to set up like a shop there and actually sell books. Uh, they right. want to do it in Sweden as well. Um, you know, because these markets are rife with piracy because they're just there's not a whole lot of frontless titles available. You know, if you want to, exactly. if you want to, you know, download the latest Stephen King book or if you want to download uh uh, the Goldfinch, you know, you won't find it there. You have to pirate it because it's simply not available through traditional channels. And then when, you know, a company like Kobo or Amazon comes around, they go knocking on every single publisher's door saying, you know, uh, guys, you should start digitalizing your whole catalog. We'll make you millions of dollars, you know. And uh, do you? And uh, do you really? I think that it's the markets that are untapped that are the highest degree of piracy uh right now china russia and vietnam um and now the netherlands they pretty well have the largest piracy problems in the world and right. incidentally those those four markets amazon kobo barnes and noble sony there's none of them in those markets to actually stimulate publisher involvement with bringing their front list titles to ebooks for profit Right. We actually had a, a bigger issue when the digital revolution, as we know it, actually kicked off. And that was that the governments didn't know how to handle the taxation on ebooks. We saw situations like Germany, where, for example, it was a book and therefore it had to be priced exactly like its print counterpart, but it was also taxed exactly like a software download. So, where I would pay 7% tax for a print book at $10, for example. I had to pay 19% tax on ebook and still pay the $10 price tag because it was also a book. And, you know, of course, Germany handled that rather quickly and rather well. Um, but I think we're still seeing markets who are just not certain that, first of all, this is going to take off. Why do I bring Parliament together to change the laws when there's only 16,000 titles available and only 4% of the market? You know, we're talking about something that it clearly demonstrates, at least to politicians, the public's not interested in. 
And so I think they're not taking into account things like the rampant piracy. You also have the fact that um, we've, we've proven, of course, J.K. Rowling, back to her, was one of the great examples that when people cannot get a book, they will pirate it. The Harry Potter books, for example. When she finally released the digital editions of those books, which she did one at a time in a maddeningly, maddeningly slow pace, excuse me, um, it was a relief to readers. People actually came forward and said, now I can buy a copy. I will be happy to give you the money. But I wanted to read it on my e-reader. And so we have a market where people have the expensive device and nothing to put on it. Well, of course I'm going to pirate some books. If I've paid for a tablet or smartphone or a dedicated e-reader and there's nothing to read on it, and you show me a place where I can download some materials, of course I will. Because why did I just spend the money on this you know, this frivolous purchase, basically? Yeah, I know. I totally agree. I mean, I would probably say it's, you know, the markets that suffer from the greatest degree of piracy in general, um, aside from the that issues, it's because there's no big major ebook mm -hmm. seller in those countries convincing right. the publishing sector that there's value in digital. Um, and you know, that's a, that's a, a, it's a huge issue in itself. And I mean, we could devote an entire podcast to just talking about that's where, right. you know, uh, there's some countries with like, you know, like a 3% that, and you know, that's, you know, out of Brussels, for instance, or Belgium. And that's where a lot of these companies are basing their European operations out of, and then bypassing the high VAT you know, in the UK and things like that, uh, or in Ireland by, you know, filtering all their sales through these like proxy countries with no VAT. Um, right. You know, in France, you know, uh, e-books have a different VAT than real books. In other countries, real books have a higher VAT than e-books. So there's really no consistency. And, and right. I mean, the, the European Commission is well aware of this and they've been in limbo for at least three or four years trying to resolve this, but it's trying to get every member of the European Union trying to bring them together on how do we price digital books? I mean, that is a monumental undertaking that will not be resolved anytime soon. It's like the the Authors Guild versus Google and book scanning. I mean, well, how long has that been in court for? For like six, seven years already? Right. You know, right. with like no end in sight, basically. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of details, but we hope that you guys have enjoyed this rambling diatribe filled edition of the Goody Reader Radio Show. We've talked go about Go GI Joe. Yeah, go Joe. We've been talking about a lot of subjects today. If you have any ideas for future episodes of the show, drop a comment. And if you're listening to the show on iTunes, uh, Sound. Uh, SoundHound or various other channels, go to goodyreader.com, click on the radio tab, and you could listen to all of our other shows. And for goodyreader.com, my name is Michael, and I've been joined today by senior editor of Goody Reader, Mercy Pilkington. Mercy, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody take care.